The text I will read to you will not be our main text, but it's sort of a theme text for this three-week series. So I'm going to read for you 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This is the word of Almighty God. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Pray with me, friends. Lord, truly we sing. Hallelujah. Praise to the Lord. All I have is Christ. May that be something we understand. May that be something that gives us life and joy. God, be magnified. Teach us and grow us today, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Let's do a little exercise. We are in an exercise studio. That's not exactly what I meant, but that just came to me as I read that line. A mental exercise. Aren't those your favorite kind? I want us to think about a little history here. I want you to think about understanding history. Imagine you want to understand more fully something like World War II. Are any of you guys World War II history buffs? couple of you. I find it fascinating. But here's what I want you to add. I want to add a complication to your study. I want you to imagine that you want to understand World War II, but you have no concept of what is meant by the word ocean. Would that change your ability to understand World War II? Think about what you cannot grasp about World War II if you don't know what an ocean is. You can't ever understand the the attack on Pearl Harbor, the battle for Iwo Jima, the Doolittle Raids. Without a grasp of ocean, submarine warfare, the rescue at Dunkirk, the D-Day landing, they don't make any sense. If you don't know what the ocean is, you can't understand the massive difficulty of moving armies from continent to continent. You can't understand the tremendous importance of ships, aircraft carriers. Bottom line, you can explain a lot of World War II, but if you don't understand what an ocean is, you really are lacking in the big picture. You guys would agree with that, right? Well, If you don't know what an ocean is, you don't understand World War II. Similarly, if you don't understand what a covenant is, or at least a little bit about the important covenants that are in Scripture, you will have an understanding of God's overall plan that is lacking. This morning, we're going to continue our look at the big picture of the Bible. We want to catch the highest of the high points of God's glorious story of redemption. And we're going to do it by looking at seven key biblical covenants. Not all this morning. 
The first one we'll look at is the covenant of redemption. We call that the pactum salutis, if you love some Latin. After that, we'll look at the Adamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. If you're with us last week, you might remember we began to look at what a covenant is. Then we took a little bit of time to look at what many people call the covenant of redemption. And we examined a variety of Old Testament scriptures that hint for us toward the covenant of redemption. So today I want to review a little bit of what a covenant is, review a little bit of what the covenant of redemption is, and spend most of our time, again, being a little teachy, if you guys will allow me to be a little teachy, in explaining and seeing evidence for the glorious covenant of redemption in the gospel according to John. John is where we will spend all of our time, so if you want to turn there, you can. What is a covenant? Tom Schreiner says that a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. Sam Renahan tells us that a covenant is a guaranteed commitment. Two parties make commitments to one another. Their commitments are often summed up in I will, you will statements. Different covenants have different kinds of commitments, Renahan goes on to say. And the varying kinds of commitments in these covenants result in different kinds of covenants. So a covenant, I would tell you, is a binding, relationship-based agreement. Covenant's like a promise, but bigger, like a contract, but both stronger and more focused on relationship. A covenant is an oath, and it often includes sanctions for breaking it and blessings for filling it attached. We'll talk a lot more about covenants as we look at the different key covenants between now and the end of the year. But for now, we know enough to press on. So let's talk about the covenant of redemption. If you want to unpack the doctrine of the covenant of redemption, we have to answer these three questions. What is the covenant of redemption? Where is the covenant of redemption found in Scripture? And why is the covenant of redemption important to Christians? So let's go back. We did this last week, but it was the gym and you couldn't hear. What is the covenant of redemption? The covenant of redemption is the agreement made in eternity past between the persons of the Holy Trinity to accomplish God's holy plan of salvation. His plan to redeem for himself a people. This plan is eternal, put in place by God before creation, thus before the fall of mankind. God the Father elects a people to salvation and sends forth His Son to accomplish their redemption. The Father also promises His Son a glorious reward for His participation in and completion of the mission. God the Son is willingly sent by God the Father to accomplish the redemption of those elected by the Father. God the Holy Spirit 
causes the incarnation, aids the Son in his earthly ministry, and applies redemption to and seals those elected by the Father and redeemed by the Son. That's what we told you last week, you remember? Now, where is the covenant of redemption found in Scripture? This is where the lion's share of our time will be today. Last week, we opened several Old Testament passages to show us the covenant of redemption, and these included Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4, and servant songs in Isaiah Chapters 42, 49, 50, and 53. Now, let's look for a bit at the gospel according to John. And there we will find several passages that point us to and explain to us the eternal agreement among the Godhead to bring about our redemption to the great glory of God. So go to John chapter 1. In the prologue of John, the gospel writer shares with us many of the key components that he's going to address throughout the whole gospel. And what I want us to see is that in this opening, we're going to just see the possibility of the covenant of redemption because we see a God present in eternity past, a single God of three persons who has an eternal plan that he will execute. Look at John 1. Verses 1 through 3. How familiar is this? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. First, we look back not to the beginning, but before the beginning. When creation took place, God was already there. And John is clear to let us know that Jesus, God the Son, is eternally present just as is God the Father. You guys know that's a big deal doctrine, right? Nothing ever came into being that did not do so through Jesus. Now, the Spirit of God is not mentioned here, but there's no reason to overlook His presence as well. Hebrews 9.14 calls the Holy Spirit of God the eternal Spirit. He must, therefore, be present in eternity past with the Father and the Son. As we said last week, though, we know God created, but do you think that God created with no purpose? What do you guys say to that? No. Did God create with a reason, with a plan, with a purpose? Absolutely He did. If God is who we know God to be, that plan of God from before creation is perfect, flawless, infallible. God is not creating the world and then watching to see what happens. God is accomplishing every last bit of God's eternal plan. Do you guys agree with that? Now look down to 12 and 13 of John chapter 1. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Here we see something of the plan. As the Son of God comes into the world, He comes in to accomplish a redemption of people, the redemption of people through His blood. We must either choose to believe that this action of the Son is a reaction of God to man's choices, or it's the action of God that had been planned from eternity past. And as we go forward, we're going to see time and time and time again that this work of the, of the Son of God was a thing He agreed with the Father and the Spirit that He would do before time itself. So what we've established so far, just in this passage today, for our understanding of the covenant of redemption, it's kind of more along the lines of possibility. John's going to clarify it in future chapters. But I will tell you, the triune God exists in eternity past. After creation, the Son of God enters history as a man to redeem God's people and to display God's glory. And what I'm arguing today, I want you to get the argument I'm trying to make, is that this work of God the Son is based on an agreement made among the persons of the Trinity before there was time. Now flip over to John 4. John 4. Here's a question. You might say to me, Travis, is that concept of God the Father sending God the Son a scriptural concept, or is that just a theory you have? I'm so glad you asked. John 4, 34, you tell me, is this biblical or theoretical? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Notice two things about what Jesus tells his disciples right here. First, Jesus tells us he has been sent. Jesus the one we know to be God in the flesh, allowed himself to be sent. He willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father. Jesus also tells us he has come to accomplish the Father's work. Jesus came with a mission, with a plan, with a task to accomplish. When do you think that task was assigned No way did this task come into being just before Jesus was born. God didn't go, oh, I got an idea. After all, in the Psalms, written 1,000 B.C., in Isaiah 700 B.C., this plan of God was already in motion. And if I gave you a little spoiler alert for next week, In our look at Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to see that the Father chose us before the foundation of the world, verse 4, and predestined us to salvation, verse 5. 
Jesus, God the Son, came to earth, sent by his Father on mission to accomplish his Father's will, and that will was established before creation. This is what we call the covenant of redemption. Go to John 5. You guys are thinking, man, it took you weeks to preach through these chapters of John, and they're already in chapter 5? I'm sneaky. In John 5, I want us all to note the unity among the persons of the Trinity regarding the plan of God, even while God the Father and God the Son will play completely differing roles. Look down at verse 19 of John 5. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Son does nothing on his own. He only follows the lead of God the Father. Doctrinally, this makes a major impact on our thinking. There is no disunity at all among the persons of the Trinity regarding the plan of redemption. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are utterly of one unified mind, one will, when it comes to the people Christ will save. Does that feel like a big deal to you or not? Doctrinally ask yourself this question, did the Son come to save people the Father didn't elect? If He did, that would, promote, that would prove disunity. Jesus trying to do a thing the Father did not send Him to do. Do you guys believe the Son came to do a thing that the Father did not send Him to do? Not according to that verse of the Bible. What did Jesus say? The Son can do nothing but what He sees His Father doing. There's the doctrine, right? If you go further in this chapter, there's other references Jesus makes to doing the will of the Father. Verse 30. I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 36. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Verse 43. I've come in my Father's name, Jesus shows us he was sent. He was sent by the Father. He was sent by the Father on a particular mission. What do we call that? The covenant of redemption. John chapter 6. Go down to verse 37. In John 6, we read what we often call the bread of life discourse. Jesus is speaking to some of his religious opponents, his adversaries. And here we're going to read some of the clearest text in all of Scripture on the covenant of redemption. I want to read for us 37 through 40, and then we're going to break them apart a little bit. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see Jesus' mission here, guys? Verse 37. All that the Father gives to Jesus will come to Jesus. We know from chapter 1, 12 and 13, which we already read today, whoever receives Jesus, whoever believes in his name, will become a child of God. Now we see that the ones who come to Jesus, they are the ones the Father gives to Jesus. And don't let your mind skip over the doctrinal significance of the completion and the perfection of this plan. All the Father gives will come. There is no such thing as a partial fulfillment here. Jesus does not say, some who the Father gives me come, all come. Which all? All the Father gives the Son come to the Son. Verse 38, Jesus points us to the pactum, the covenant of redemption, Jesus came down to earth from heaven, not to do his own will, but to do the will of the one who sent him. The son comes sent by the father to accomplish the mission the father sent him to accomplish. Now be careful not to confuse yourself here. When Jesus says he didn't come to do his own will, he's not suggesting he's unwilling to fulfill the plan. The point Jesus is making is that as the plan has been made... The Father does the sending, and Jesus willingly is sent. The covenant of redemption includes the Son's joyful submission to the Father's command. And as we see in covenants all through the Bible, the relationship between the Father and the Son results not only in His being sent, but in the Son's being rewarded for following the command that he was given by the Father. And what is the reward Jesus gets? At least part of the reward that Jesus gets here, the Son gains for his obedience to the covenant stipulations, is that he will receive as a gift the particular people promised him by the Father. Ask yourself this. Will the Son have all the people he intends to redeem? I, yeah, thank you, Russ. As we see in verse 39, the will of the Father is that Jesus would lose none of the ones the Father has given him, but raise them up on the last day. The will of the sender, God the Father, is that Jesus, God the Son, would not lose any, not a single one, of the ones the Father has given to him, but would keep them and raise them up on the last day. Do take note of the verb tense, please. The giving of this people, this very particular people from the Father to the Son, has already taken place before the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus has a job to do that includes losing none of the ones the Father already has given him. 
What does that indicate, friends? At some point, before Jesus ever came to the earth, the Father and the Son agreed that the Son would go to the earth to accomplish the redemption of a people, a particular people the Father would send the Son to redeem. The Son's mission is to be sure not to lose a single one of those the Father sends him to redeem. And add to this understanding that the Son's mission does not include only Him redeeming a particular people given Him by the Father. It also includes His preservation of that very same people. He will raise the ones He redeems up on the last day. He will not lose them. He will not try to redeem them and fail. He will not redeem them and then have them slip out of His grasp after after their redemption. If The Son accomplishes the task given Him by the Father. He comes to the earth, sent by the Father to do the Father's will, redeems the ones given Him by the Father, loses none of them, and raises all of them up on the final day. Then bring in verse 40. What's the will of the Father that the Son will do? Everyone who looks on the Son in faith will have eternal life. And the Son will raise them up on the last day. So just in case you start thinking to yourself, well, this has nothing to to do with our gospel understanding of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Just in case you think this has nothing to do with believing in Jesus and evangelism and all the rest, Jesus makes it clear this is exactly the plan. The plan of God is that those he sends the Son to redeem will look to Jesus in faith for salvation. Jesus will lose not one of them, and Jesus will raise all of them up on the last day. So the covenant of redemption includes the Father electing a people for redemption and sending the Son to be the Redeemer And the Father promises that the Son will have a reward for accomplishing this plan. The reward is the people that the Son will redeem, given to Him as a gift from the Father. And the Son is willingly sent by the Father. He obeys the Father's command. He accomplishes the redemption of the elect through His life, death, and resurrection. And the Spirit of God aids Jesus in His work. He applies the redemption of Christ to the elect. He seals the elect to God for eternity Almost every bit of this is spelled out right here in the words of Jesus in John chapter 6. It's the covenant of redemption. Turn to John 10. Still with me so far? Okay. Bored yet? Just checking. In John chapter 10 we'll see two places, actually two totally different settings with Jesus. And he'll show us his accomplishing the will of the Father to save the people God sent him to save. And the particular bell we continue to hear ringing is that there is a clear sending of the Son by the Father to accomplish the task of redeeming a particular people. And we already know from John 6, later Ephesians chapter 1, this particular people, the elect, were given from the Father to the Son in eternity past. Look at John 10, 14, 14 to 18. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. 
And I have other sheep that are not this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." Excuse me here. Catch two things. Verse 15. Jesus lays down his life for whom? Look, look at verse 15 and tell me, who does Jesus say he lays down his life for? Just any sheep? The sheep. Doesn't say I lay down my life for sheep. I lay my, my life down for the sheep. Whose sheep? His sheep. The ones he calls my own. Verse 16, Jesus says, it is imperative that he accomplish this task. He must bring his sheep. Verse 18, Jesus is doing this in response to, hear it again, the charge given him by his father. You starting to feel the pattern, guys? Look at verses 24 to 30. This is a totally different setting. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Verse 26, Jesus emphasizes the particularity of his work. The religious teachers opposing him do not believe in him. They're not coming to him for life. Listen to this. Pay attention here. Wake up if you started to sleep. Why, why do the religious leaders not believe? Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Jesus does not say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. Jesus says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Do you see the difference in those? Guys, that's giant. This reminds us that the Father gave a particular people to his Son and sent the Son to redeem them. Verses 28 and 29 The keeping work of Christ's redemption is there, right? The Father gave the sheep to the Son. The Son holds and keeps the sheep. In unison with the Son, the Father also holds and keeps the sheep. After all, as Jesus says in verse 30, He and the Father are one. There is unity in the one true God, even as the Father sends the Son on mission to redeem His chosen sheep, and the Son goes and does the redeeming. Can you handle one more? John 17, John 17, 
Finally, in our look at the plan of redemption in the gospel according to John, I want us to turn to Jesus' great high priestly prayer. This is Jesus the night before his crucifixion. He prays in John 17, starting in verse 1. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. You see the words here? Who is he going to give eternal life to according to the Scripture? All whom you have given to him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you when? Before the world existed. As Jesus prays to the Father the very night before his crucifixion, he's very clear about the mission. Look at verse 2. Jesus says of himself to the Father, you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus has an authority from the Father, and the authority of Jesus is to give eternal life to whom the ones the Father has already given him. These are the elect chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world, who will be redeemed by the finished work of the Son. Verse 3, Jesus again refers to himself as sent by the Father. Verse 4, Jesus says he accomplished the work the Father gave him to do when before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, Jesus points back to his eternal glory that he shared with the Father before creation. This plan has been in place since before the beginning. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Here we again see Jesus reference the fact that God the Father gave him a people, a particular people, out of the rest of the world. Verse 8 and 9. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 8. The ones who believed, the ones given to Jesus by the Father, they've come to believe that the Father sent Jesus. Verse 9, Jesus makes plain that he is not praying here for every individual human being. No, he's praying to his Father on behalf of the particular people the Father has given him and sent him to redeem. Verse, all the way down 20, go down to 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe, again, look at this, that you have sent me. Here, Jesus prays not only for the present disciples, but for every other Christian who will ever believe because of the testimony of Christ's first followers. Are you a Christian today? Because that's Jesus talking about you. 
You believe because of the word of Almighty God, which is the testimony of those followers of Jesus. These people will believe. They will be saved. And they will know Jesus was sent to accomplish this mission that he and the Father agreed upon before creation. You can read the same thing in 23 and 24, but we'll skip it for now. Dear friends, what you've got to see in John's gospel, what would you call this? Would you say a hint, a hidden murmuring? Or would you say this is overwhelmingly consistent? Jesus is sent by the Father, sent to accomplish a plan the members of the Trinity agreed upon before ever creating the world. The Father does the electing. The Father does the sending. The Father promises the Son a reward. Jesus does the work to accomplish the redemption of the elect and receives the elect as his reward. The Spirit is at work as well, part of the eternal plan. We'll see more of that as we do the remainder of the New Testament. But today what we've done, get this, this feels overwhelming. All I've done is shown you pointers to the covenant of redemption in one single New Testament book. Lord willing, next week, if you guys can tolerate it, we will look at this doctrine in the rest of the New Testament. Then, Lord willing, Ben's going to preach for us sometime. Get your sermon done yet, Ben? (laughs) Close. He'll get there. He'll get there. And then, starting the month of November, we're going to go on to see how God, through Scripture, unfolds this beautiful plan, piece by piece, step by step, covenant by covenant, as we'll march from the covenants all the way into Christmas. Sound fun to you? Why is the covenant of redemption important to Christians? Could you answer that question by yourself if you had to at this point? You'd get some, wouldn't you? If you don't know what an ocean is, you're going to have a hard time putting together the stories of World War II. If you don't know what God has told us is his eternal purpose and plan, you're going to have a very difficult time understanding how all the Bible fits together from beginning to end. But if you know what God has eternally promised, eternally planned to do, you can see that every bit of Scripture points us toward the accomplishment of a mission planned and executed by God that began before the beginning and that will last for all of eternity. Christians, there's gospel in this plan, don't you think? God the Father sent God the Son to save your very soul. If you've come to Jesus, know that the work needed to save your soul, every bit of it is fully accomplished by our Savior. You can't work your way to God. You can't impress God with your skills and your winning personality. The love of God was set upon you before there was time. The Father gave you as a gift to His Son before there was time. The Son came and accomplished your redemption before you were born. And the redemption of the Son was applied to you, not because of your effort and not by your effort, but through the grace of God and the powerful moving of the Holy Spirit. 
Yes, you did believe. Yes, you did repent. And those acts are the result of the eternal working, planning, and moving of God. Thus, you should give God all the glory for your salvation and know that you didn't do a single thing to save yourself. Let this also lead you to a a place of gratitude for salvation. Let it lead you to a heart that desires to obey the God who saved your soul, uh, the God who can satisfy your heart forever. Let it lead you to confidently share the gospel. Because you know what? God saves people. All the Father gives to the Son will come. Do you believe that? You know what that means? There are people out there who don't believe yet, but the Father has given them to the Son. And we get to be the ones who take the Word of God to those people to help them along the path to believing. Never fear to proclaim Jesus because God's going to bring people to Jesus in ways you could never imagine. And as I said last week, if you're hearing this and you don't know Jesus, realize God has you hearing this for a reason. It may very well be that the reason you've been allowed by God to hear these words is so that you will believe that the Father sent Jesus to save your soul. Believe in Jesus. Turn away from sin. Trust your soul to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Say, Jesus, please save me. Be saved. Listen to me. Jesus will turn no one away. All who come in repentant faith will be saved. All who come will find out they've already been changed. All who come will live a brand new life, the life God intends for them as they glorify the God who saves their souls. Let's pray. God, you're good. Your word is rich. This doctrine is deep and heavy. Help us to see the beauty and glorify the Savior. I pray for anyone who hears this message who doesn't yet know you, that they'll come. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.